Hi everyone, this is Michelle Gale. I'm so happy you found your way to this podcast, Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. I'd love for you to become a part of my community. So if you're inspired, please visit beamindfulparent.com and sign up to my weekly newsletter. By signing up, you will receive the Busy Parents Guide to Practicing Mindfulness, which includes learnings, meditations, and practices to support your path. From my website, you can also purchase the online conference from September if you missed it, as well as buy some other courses and coaching offerings I have available. I love keeping this podcast free of advertisements and always appreciate the support of my work. Also, if you love this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Life is messy, and it's exactly within this messiness where our greatest opportunities for growth live. Thank you for being here. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. I'm your host, Michelle Gale, and I am here today with Autumn McFarland. She is the founder of Family Factor and mother of two. She earned her master's degree from the University of Colorado at Denver in educational psychology with an emphasis on human development and child psychology. Autumn brings more than a decade of experience working with both academic settings and families. Autumn has taught children both here in America and abroad and has a rich understanding of what different family units can look like. Autumn found most of her passion for family factor in the meditation and learned patience of what it means to be a mother and a partner to her husband, Shane. Autumn's passion for child advocacy drives her work to ensure that every child feels safe and supported in their academic environment and that every parent feels supported and in partnership with those caring for their children. Welcome, Autumn. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to have you. And I think this is such an important conversation and something I connect with so much about advocating for our children in education. So tell me how um, how did you end up getting interested in this? Like where, where did, how did this path <laughs> become, become its thing? <laughs> I know, and I'm debating whether to start at the very beginning, 35 years ago, or more recently, three years ago. <laughs> well, um, give us the highlights. You know, my mom has been an early childhood educator for 35 years, mm-hmm. and so I grew up um, with a great role model of what someone who advocates for children's knowledge and uh, children's school settings look, looks like. So that was mm-hmm. sort of my first base. Um, and then for years, everybody said that I should be a teacher and I resisted it because becoming my mom was of course not what I thought I wanted to do when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I became a mother myself and realized how passionate I was about early childhood development. Mm. Um, and so I went back to graduate school when my daughter was about two and a half years old. And um, the more I learned about the brain uh, between zero and six and educational philosophy between really the ages of zero and nine, um, I just really became passionate about what our children are capable of. um, And I became a little disgruntled at what the options are um, in comparison to what I feel like they should be and what our children deserve. And I had to do a little bit of advocating myself for my daughter um, in her preschool environment because it just wasn't a good environment for her. And a lot of the social pressures were 
preventing me from speaking up and really saying what I thought she needed. Um, and when I overcame that, what are those, what were those social pressures? Um, I like to call them the shoulds. And so what I call the shoulds are the, um, you know, your neighbor tells you it's the best school. And so you feel like that's where you should go or, um, the town tells you it's the best school or the social culture tells you it's the best school or, um, that, you know, spending money on your child's education means that you're getting a good education or transitioning and saying, you know, I'm not happy here isn't socially maybe acceptable. So you feel like you shouldn't say it. I mean, all these things that I feel like, especially as, as parents, we, we, we sort of fall into a pit of these shoulds. And it's really hard sometimes, I think, to silence and clear out all those shoulds and really focus on what's important. Mm. Um, And when I did that, I sort of had this epiphany of, you know, every parent deserves to feel empowered to advocate for their own child um, and, and get them in a, in a setting that makes them feel comfortable and where they see their child thriving. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. And I interrupted you. You were going on, if you went on from preschool about the shoulds and then what? Um, I don't know. I get lost. Yeah, I'm pregnant. So my pregnancy brain kicks in and... <laughs> In one year and out the other. <laughs> you were talking about your path and how you got interested in this. So you were advocating for your daughter in preschool. Yes. Okay. So um, advocating for her and doing the work I had to do, as I said before, just made me realize that every parent deserves to feel that um, empowered feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of started looking at both the academic structure that we have set up in the U.S., Um, and I had the opportunity of traveling to Italy, to Reggio Italy, um, and observing schools there. And I realized we put so much, um, I'm going to say political pressure. What I mean by political pressure is just the, the need for a school to be a profitable business. Mm. Um, and I think that we've lost sight. And when I say we, I just mean we as a culture in the society that, we've sort of all become a part of that a school forgets in a way that it's, it's a place for children to grow um, first and that's what it should be first. And it should be a business second. Um, And I know that's me on a pedestal because there's so much red tape and funding issues um, and it's a bigger battle to be fought. But I just realized that oftentimes teachers are prevented from creating the environment that they may want to create for children. Mm. Um, And that's when I really realized that a parent's advocacy for their child is the only way to voice those concerns in a way that makes the teacher able to act because if it's coming from the parent, right, the client, the paying one, um, there's a lot more power behind it. And I think that as parents, it can feel scary to say, I'm not happy or I need something because you don't want your child to be disliked in school. You don't want yourself to be disliked at the school. Um, And so I really have been trying to be a translator between schools and parents and not make it a tit for tat, but make it a conversation about how to best support children. I have a few questions. So yeah. um, one, just to put into the air that, you know, it's also this whole conversation is also 
connected to privilege in a lot of ways, right? Because it's parents that even have time to advocate for their children. So I just want to say that out loud, that this conversation is, um, you know, it leaves a lot of people out, right? In our culture, like parents that are just barely getting by and barely, you know, working two jobs and, um, and that, you know, we're not necessarily talking about that today, but um, that there's also this kind of tragedy side of this, right? Absolutely. And just to add to that, um, this year, actually, a study came out that says that lower income families have pretty much been priced out of preschool, of good preschool, which is devastating. Um, And it essentially says that the top 20% are able to afford more and the bottom 20% can't can't do it anymore. And that's the state averages that one in three families spend more than 20% of household income on care for their children every year. That's just crazy. Yeah. It's totally crazy. So, so that's yeah. Its that's its own conversation. It is. It yeah. is. Cultural conversation. Um, but going back to, you said you went to Reggio, Italy. Um, and I would love for you to expand on what was it that you learned there? Like, what did you see when you were there in Italy that you weren't seeing here in the U.S.? So the biggest thing that I saw was that the entire community is in support of the school philosophy. Um, And an interesting part of American academics and education, which um, probably spills over into a lot of what America is built on, is that we have so many options. Um, And we have the choice of option, which is wonderful. But it also prevents us from having a centered view and really focusing on you know, one or two amazing schools rather than 50 subpar. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is when we were in Reggio, the schools that are there are state funded. They're um, supported by the local government. They're supported by the local community. They're supported by parents, by working members of the community, by the children themselves. And the whole town is really seen as a classroom. Mm. Um, there aren't, you know, there are obviously physical walls of every school, but the children go to the shops and the courtyards and the cafes and the entire community is accepting of young minds learning and growing and developing and asking questions, um, and exploring the environment around them. Is that how you would describe that philosophy? Like, how would you describe the Reggio philosophy for some I would so know what it was. So the Reggio philosophy is an open-ended self-exploration, um, nature-based philosophy of education. Um, in the U.S., I feel like it's been turned a little bit more into a play-based concept, mm-hmm. um, which, in my opinion, is a misinterpretation of, of what it was set out to be. Um, a great example is uh, the equity-equality uh uh, image. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but where you have, you know, equality, which is three children standing on the same size box, but only the tallest can see over the fence mm-hmm. versus equity where everybody gets the size they need in order to see the same view. Um, and Reggio is, ec- is the equity piece. Okay. Uh, versus the equality piece, which is, I think, how we've kind of interpreted it in the U.S. I don't know if that was more confusing than less confusing. Yeah, no, I don't think so. And it, you know, for me, a personal example of that, 
um, is, you know, we just, I was telling you before we got on our call recently, you know, we have our son started high school this year and he started at a local Catholic school, which he always wanted to go to very much for the sports and the spirit and the culture. And um, academically, it was, it was just a lot of output, you know, the amount of homework and he was just getting up early in the mornings and staying late at night and, you know, one day on the weekends and, um, and he does have a learning difference. He has ADD and slow processing. And so what the school couldn't understand, or a lot of the teachers certainly wouldn't or couldn't, was that by making accommodations for him, their perception was they were giving him an advantage you know, which yeah. is kind of what I heard you say in, you know, by, by lifting that person up so they can see some people may say, yeah, but they've got an advantage, right? When all you're doing is leveling the playing field right? Absolutely. For, for certain kids. So they just couldn't see that as, oh, we're leveling the playing field so we can see what he's really capable of. Instead, he was just always behind the eight ball, right? And never catching up. And, um, and, you know, we moved him over the, the local public school very recently and so far so good. They're just really willing to make those accommodations and, you know, he gets the grades he deserves, right? Because, yeah. because they've leveled the playing field. So that's kind of how I hear that example, you know, within the context of, you know, kids that have learning differences. Absolutely. And what's so interesting is that the city has done, the entire city of Reggio has done what you're describing and what we're talking about, which is they've said, well, what is it? Why are we saying that this town and this city and this community should be adult driven when half of it or more than half are children? And they've basically made it so that water fountains, toilets, um, cafes, windows, things are accessible um, for the entire community, which includes every child at every stage of need or developmental difference that they're at. Wow. Um, so it's just a really different way of looking at social culture in general, but then it really trickles into the school. Um, and yeah, and it's, you know, just like you're saying, it's, it's not giving an advantage if it's what a child needs in order to, to see what they need to see. And so that's really interesting. So the whole town basically has come together to say, let's level the playing field for everyone at all ages. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. And so, so you went to Reggio, you know, spent this time in Italy, you come back and now um, tell us a little bit about what it is exactly that you do for families. I know it starts, you know, even as young as six weeks old um, to what kind of care to place a child in. What are, how are you working with parents? What are the types of questions you're asking? And, um, you know, why would a parent come to you at that, at that age to decide where to put their child in daycare? So great question. And a lot of times when children are that young, parents are coming to me for support with their own separation anxiety or fears around leaving their child at a care setting. Um, a lot of times it's the first time they've stepped away from their child. They have to go back to work and it's just a lot of transition. Um, and so the, the type of work that I do with families at the very young age is just to work on matching their own philosophy with an environment that makes them feel good about where they're leaving their child all day. Um, and I love to give examples. So my example of this is, you know, I live in Boulder, so we're big skiers and snowboarders out here. Um, and I like to compare it to going up to the mountains. And if you as parents are snowboarders and your child 
ends up in ski school all week while they've learned a valuable lesson, at the end of the week, the, the lessons and the skills and the morals are different. And now you can't have a family experience together. Um, and so my job is really to make sure that I'm aligning what's being taught to the children with what the family's philosophy is so that that child's getting consistent support and uh, consistent skill sets, both at the home and in the school. Mm. Um, yeah. So what are different, what are parents, what's some examples, what are parents looking for in like a, a care placement? Like what would they be looking for? So I get parents who are looking for everything from um, play-based settings, which are very open-ended, unstructured, um, you know, let children be children, sort of exploration-based. And then I have parents who are really looking for an environment that's going to instill a little bit more structure, um, you know, more boundaries, um, more academic stresses starting at a younger age. Um, and so my job is to observe the child and observe the family unit and find a good balance for that, um, for that family as a whole and for the child so that everybody's benefiting and feeling like they're getting what they want out of the academic setting that they're in. Mm, And that's even like in daycare. Yeah. So daycare is a dangerous word for me. I, I, it's used so often and I try and, um, daycare and babysitter are the two words I try and really stay away from because I, um, I feel as though there's an image when we use the word daycare that portrays, um, plastic bins, bright colors, um, sort of stagnant time to fill between when, mom mom and or dad and or parents or caregivers go to work and when they come back. Mm. Um, and I really believe that if we view care settings in a different way, they will they will start to change the way that we need them to change in order to give everybody um, the the start that they deserve from zero to six, ages zero to six especially. Um, you know, the brain absorbs more in those first six years than it does for the rest of our life. I mean, it's one of the most powerful tools that we have and it's most powerful acting time is zero to six. And I feel as though when we talk about care settings as daycares, we see them as um, something that's not inviting of learning and of Mm -hmm. challenging a child in any capacity, whether that be challenging them with provocations of um, you know, natural elements or light or um, academic materials, whatever it might be. Um, I just, I think that the way we have the conversation about what childcare is and about where our children are needs to start changing um, so that, again, we as parents can advocate for what we believe our children need. And what would you call it? Um, so I call them academic settings or educational settings, and I call them that even starting at six weeks old. Um, I really believe that, you know, if and for anybody who's who's been a parent, who is a parent, who's about to be a parent, or who's watched a child from an early age, they learn so fast, mm. um, and the brain is just rapidly expanding and picking things up and developing and questioning the world around them, um, and you know that's that's all learning. That that's an academic experience and a process in and of itself. Um, so I'm also trying to sort of segue the the view of academics in this, you know, 
children sitting in rows at desks being forced yeah, to do hours of homework. Yeah, that's kind of what I think of. Like, I was going to push you on that. Like, somehow when I hear academic setting, I feel like that can confuse parents, you know, that I should be looking for academics, you know, yeah. when they're so young instead of looking for experiences of color and sensory experiences, which is really what you're pointing to. I mean, you're not pointing to academics at all. You're pointing exactly to that. But I know that um, I remember when I was looking for um, preschools, like even like when they were three years old, um, they were, there was some that were literally like, like, well, we get them ready for kindergarten. I'm like, okay. And we'll be exiting the front door now. (laughs) I'm not, they're not here to get ready for kindergarten. They're here to be in preschool. You know, they're they're here for a totally different experience. So I, you know, I worry like get pushed down even earlier, you know, than three that people will think, Oh, we've got to focus on academics. So how do you speak to that? So, and this is where I get really excited. So this is, this is the area that I think is, um, just, just like you're talking to it, the, the image needs to be changed. So when I say academic or educational experience, and you are exactly right. Most people and the majority of, of families that I work with go straight to, well, I don't want to push my child into academics. They're too young. I want them to be a kid. I want them to play and explore and experience. And that is 100% what I want to advocate for. And the difference is that I believe we have forgotten to teach our children the love of learning. Um, the, the act of academic uh, processes, which is, you know, your ABCs and your one, two, threes is one component of that. But we as human beings can't absorb knowledge unless we are in a settled state, right? If our nervous system is anxious or jumbled or, um, frustrated, it's not going to learn nearly as well as a person who is calm and confident and enjoying what they're doing. Mm. And I believe that children have this amazing ability to love learning about almost anything that's presented to them in a fun and exciting and enticing way. Um, You know, and you see it all the time. I mean, you see young children who are counting stones or making up stories um, or talking about you know, the, their dad went to outer space this weekend with their dog and coming up with these incredible storylines. Yeah. When we hone in on that, that's, that's education, right? I mean, that's, that's language building. That's, that's taking um, a reality and putting it into a context that is a storyline, which there's a lot of philosophies of storybook learning yeah. um, and sort of teaching through storybook and fantasy and just expanding that awareness and that passion for learning um, and and loving to learn and and you know whether it be like I said learning new words right I mean I've had children who say my dad went to outer space this weekend because my husband works for NASA and it comes up and I say really did you see any planets um, you know and what a great opportunity to learn about planets and talk about planets and um, those are sort of the experiences I talk to and I I. Th- think that what's been disheartening for me is I've observed care settings where a child or a group of children are on the cusp of that exploration and the opportunity is missed by the educator because this is a sticking point. I'm not sure. I I don't want to place blame and I don't think there's blame to place. I think we're just 
not focusing on the right things in the early stages. Um, I think we're either focused on 100% play or like you're saying, that driving academic, strict, learning your numbers, learning your letters. And I think there's this whole beautiful gray area that if we focus on, will allow teachers to support children and will allow children to truly love learning so that when they do have to learn math, they say, oh, wow, this is another learning opportunity. And I I get to learn, not I have to learn. Mm. Um, And I think that switch is really important. And how is this, but how is this different from play-based learning? Because that's, that's how I understand play-based learning, that from play, you find different things to learn and that the teachers kind of follow you through your play. Um, So how is what you're talking about different than play-based learning? Or is it, or is it, is it just a different way to explain play-based learning? I think there have been different um, interpretations of play-based learning and Yes, play-based learning ideally looks like following a child where they are and using their own exploration as a teaching tool for any number of of experiences or subjects. Um, Through my graduate program and my observation of different care settings, what I have found is that play-based learning has been, been interpreted as let children play all day. Mm. Um, And there's a big difference there. And there's a big difference, especially if you're spending thousands of dollars a year, in my opinion, on this philosophy that you're not misinterpreting or being misinformed about what that means. Um, And again, I think this sort of boils back to aligning philosophies, right? As a parent, if you go into a school and you say we're play-based and we meet the child where they are and it's exploration-based and that sounds lovely. Um, What I often will see is parents coming to me saying my child is having behavior issues. They're having um, a lot of social, negative social interactions at school. And when I look closer, what I'm seeing is that the follow the child and meet them where they are is being neglected. And it's really just let children do what they want with no boundaries, borders, or guidelines. Mm. Um, And that's, in my opinion, forgetting to teach children the love and respect of learning. Um, You know, the love of the environment, the respect of the environment, the the opportunity of the environment, if nothing else. And so what would a parent see? Like, um, you know, if you sent a parent to go look at, you know, a couple of different schools, what would they see if they walked in the door and they were at a school that was just kind of giving lip service, right, to to play-based learning and keeping following the children where they are? And if they walked into a school where they were really walking their talk, right, really walking their talk, like what what, what can parents look for? So before I answer that, I want to pause and I, I want to make one make sure I'm making one thing clear. I think that every school that opens opens with a passion for providing an environment for children that supports them. Mm. Um, that that's one thing I've learned. I think that um, I, I don't want my words to get. I realize that it could sound like I'm placing blame or or neglect on the the care center. And I think that every care center that opens opens with the intention of providing the best service for children and families. Um, So I want to say that. And then um, the differences that I have parents look for 
are very nuanced. What I usually suggest is um, the questions to be asked. Um, And so very specific circumstantial questions. So I'll urge parents to ask the question of, let's say my child um, is building blocks and counting to five and then he can't get past that. What happens there? Um, Oftentimes you'll either get an answer of, oh, well, if we see the opportunity to count, we might count other objects. And then we might start looking at numbers, drawing numbers in the dirt or the sand, what they look like, um, to see if, if the school supports that interest that the child's showing versus a school that might say, oh, well, we don't worry about it. They're only so-and-so age. That'll come with time. That's going to give you a really good idea for what philosophy is driving the school Um, and for what philosophy you as a parent feel comfortable with. So if you like the idea of the numbers being introduced, that's going to send you one way. If you like the idea that the educators let the child experience it, but don't push it further um, and let that come in its own time, then that's going to take you in another direction. So I really just try and urge parents to ask the right questions to truly hone in on what philosophy is driving the school and the classroom. Mm, and I know you work with parents generally up to like third grade or so in primary school. Um, what are the different philosophies um, that parents kind of have to choose from right now that you see out there in, in the different schools that they can be looking for? So the main ones, and to bring up a, a good point you made earlier, most of the options are within the private school realm. Okay. Um, and so um the options expand with different socioeconomic situations. Right. Um, Right now, which is a a total bunch of crap. I'm just saying out loud. Yeah, (laughs) no, I agree with you. I mean, if if, if I had my druthers, I would fight at the state level. And I would say there are 10 fantastic schools, not a hundred, which we have a hundred priests, over a hundred preschools in Boulder County, which if anybody's been to Boulder, that's an drastically large amount compared to the size of our town. Wow. Um, and I just wish we could focus on 10 and make them fantastic and make them free. And yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, that's, again, that's another conversation and another fight to fight. It is. Um, and I forgot what I was talking about again, Michelle, you're going to have to remind me. We were talking about, um, what are the different types of schools that parents will be looking for of the hundred in <laughs> what are the different you know philosophies um, that and and what is your opinion on some of the better philosophies that you tend to lean into yourself yeah so the big ones right now are Montessori um, and Montessori is sort of broken into three sections you have AMI um, you have AMS And then you have sort of an un, I'm going to say unlicensed. I don't mean unlicensed as far as educators go, but unlicensed as far as Montessori goes. Like Montessori light kind of thing. Yeah. Maria Montessori wanted to make the Montessori style available to anybody, regardless of uh, financial positioning in society, which was an incredible forethought. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she did. She sort of made these three tiers. Um, Unfortunately, what's happened again is that, uh, you know, you have to be really careful when you're choosing a Montessori because there's a a vast difference between an AMI, which is the American Montessori Institute, um, and an AMS, which is the American Montessori Society, and then unlicensed Montessori. Um, 
how the teachers are trained, the regulations of the school, um, the philosophy that it's driven by. So there's a pretty big range within Montessori. Um, the other one you will see is um, Waldorf. Mm-hmm. Waldorf is similar, but not not quite so much. You have really sort of quintessential Waldorf, and then you have kind of Waldorf light um, is a good word to say it by. And what's um, the difference between Montessori and Waldorf if people are looking? Yeah, so big difference that's often misconstrued. I'm going to see if I can boil it down in a few words. Um, Waldorf is based on a very womb-like system um, of indoors being warm, protected from the exterior, uh, quiet, um, sort of softer, genuinely womb-like. That's how it's described in its Mm -hmm. philosophy. And the outdoors is, um, you know, exiting the womb. So it's bright and it's big and it's loud and it can be chaotic and it, it can be, you know, rocks and sticks and um, the, the natural elements. Okay. Um, and so it's really driven by sort of that natural process of, of going from large to small movements. Um, and then the introduction of academic, traditional academic materials happens much later. It usually doesn't happen till around first grade. Okay. Um, going into third grade. Montessori is driven by the process of um, really daily life. So the skills that a child would need um, to be a participant in society, essentially. So uh, they have a whole section starting in young education called practical life, where you learn to pour and you learn to scoop beads and um, you learn a lot of fine motor. You learn um, manners and of pushing in chairs, pleases and thank yous. Mm. Um, So it really works on sort of creating a self-reliant, self-responsible human being from a very tiny age. (laughs) Yeah. And part of this is like, what does the child need? And also what is the parent's style and does the parent's style and the child's need match? Because sometimes it's not the case, right? Absolutely. Right. They want a certain thing, but actually it's just a terrible thing for their kids. And we've been through a lot with both of our boys trying different things that, you know, appealed to us, but (laughs) didn't appeal to them. Like my youngest son, Brody really academically does best in a very small environment. Um, but we've finally, now that he's 11, have completely surrendered to the fact that socially he wants a huge social group. Yeah. He wants to be in the public school. And we ultimately, I told you, fought, you know, to have him basically homeschooled, but he goes to public school for like one academic class and electives. Right. And he does his core stuff at home, which was no easy task. And we had to sign our life away with, <laughs> with lawyers saying that we wouldn't sue the school district. Um, and again, we have resources, right? My in-laws help us and we have resources to pay for tutors. It's not an option to so many in the country, but it, it really is in, sometimes it can take some time. I tell that story. So for parents listening, just know like, you know, we've tried a lot of different environments and really the environment that we, not only that we prefer for him, but that really works best for him academically, even when he was younger, it does not appeal to him. He does not want to be in a small, like, woo-woo kind of school. Yeah. He wants to be in like a big public school. Like that's where he wants to be socially. So it's so yeah. tricky. I know. Well, and it's interesting because I have parents who say, well, if I start them at this school, do I keep them there through eighth grade? And I always have to say your child's going to change year to year. 
Exactly. You know, it's, it's, that's, that, that can be the hardest part sometimes is, is saying, well, this year Waldorf sounds great, but next year Montessori might be perfect. And then that's a whole other layer of how do you juggle that and, you know, all the transitions and the cost and, um, you know, so it's a lot of layers of kind of, you know, how, how to navigate who your child is every, every year of development or every cycle of development that they're going through. And that feels like really where mindfulness and inquiry practice come in and the importance of, of practice, because we have to be able to be constantly checking in with ourselves, right? Is this about me or is this about them, right? What Absolutely. Is, what's actually needed right now? I know. And I have to admit that I, I give this advice for a living, but when I was trying to decide on a kindergarten for my daughter, I was in tears one day on the phone with my mom because I felt like if I made the wrong decision, she was going to end up on the streets and I would have been all my fault. So, (laughs) you know, sometimes the pressure gets overwhelming and I'm here to help with that too. That's what I try and cut through as well. Yeah. Well, we teach what we need to learn, right? So there you are teaching what you need to learn. This has been so helpful. I mean, I'm sure so many parents are going to listen to this who are going through this right now and, and be able to, you know, make some different decisions and advocate in a different way and check in with themselves. And it's just such a journey to get you know, through education with our children. Yeah. And I just, I just really want to say that every parent is the best advocate for their child because they, they know that child best. And if there is something picking at you saying that where your child is, isn't right, or something doesn't feel right, you know, advocate for them, reach out to the teachers, reach out to the administrators. They're there and they, they want to support you. I think sometimes there's a, sort of a do not enter, you know, perception, um, of, of reaching out to a school. And I just really want to empower every parent to, to cross that barrier and to reach out and start a conversation. Um, because I actually just had a beautiful example of a parent who was so concerned, um, child's at a public school and she finally voiced her concern after working with me for a little bit. And the school came out full force to support her, um, and support this child. So, you know, the schools want to do what's best for the children, just like, you know, I I do as a professional and and we do as a parent community and starting the conversation sometimes is the hardest part, but it's just, it's so important. Mm, Well, thank you for that. And thank you for the work that you're doing. And I'd love for everyone to know how to reach you. What is your website? So people can, can learn more about you. Yeah. So my website is familyfactor.org. Um, ORG and I'm on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and, and Instagram, and I'm terrible at social media, but I'm, I'm there and I do my best. (laughs) Well, and you're getting ready to have your second child. So congratulations. We will all be holding you in our hearts and, um, just grateful for you sharing your, your wisdom as you walk this path and, and support parents and support yourself in, in being able to advocate for, for your children and helping others do the same. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you to all the parents out there who are, are even holding a space to think about this and to advocate for their own children because it's so important. And that's, I think, the, the best thing every parent can do for their child. Hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you, Autumn. It was really good to be here with you. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. And we will say goodbye to all of you out there. May you meet this moment fully. May you meet this moment with kindness towards yourself and others. 
Thanks for listening to Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. Michelle's new book, Mindful Parenting in a Messy World, Living with Presence and Parenting with Purpose, is now available at Amazon and at mindfulparentingbook.com. Get your copy today.